The 2016 presidential election has been characterized by some as a choice between the lesser of two evils. What alarms some political observers is that more than half of potential voters have an unfavorable view of both Donald Trump and of Hillary Clinton. It also seems like modern elections are becoming more difficult to digest for the average voter due to the sheer number of political polls and trying to figure out what do they all mean. For example, it's not unusual each week to hear something from Quinnipiac or Monmouth or the NBC Wall Street Journal or Fox News, CNN, etc., etc. It doesn't help that the cable networks and many major papers or websites like to focus on the horse race aspect of political polling, especially when you consider the margin of error uh, within these polls. I'm Bob Long. We welcome you to another edition of Stats and Stories. It's a program where we look at the statistics behind the stories and the stories behind the statistics. And as you might have guessed, we're going to talk today about polling and politics in 2016. Well, joining me for Stats and Stories is our regular panelist, Miami University Statistics Department Chair John Baylor. And our special guest today is Miami University political science professor Brian Marshall. Brian's teaching and research focuses on Congress as well as the relationship between the congressional and executive branches and quantitative methods. He also has out uh, his most recent book was on decision making on the modern in Supreme Court, analyzing major theories of judicial decision-making, as well as how the president and Congress affect the court. Brian, we welcome you to Stats and Stories today. Oh, thank you, Bob. Well, as a political scientist, I'm sure you're not different from many other political scientists or about as confused as they've ever been <laughs> this year. So let's just talk a little bit about uh, the kinds of questions as a political scientist you like to see addressed when we're talking about the whole polling process in an election year like this? So, I mean, I, I, I certainly think that it's important for, for viewers and, and educated citizens to, to have a sense of, um, uh, of the importance of polls and kind of what goes into them. And, and so, it, and, and really recognizing they're just kind of a snapshot of what's going on. And that's kind of the, the, the impulse that the media kind of, kind of gives them as well, the, the whole horse race scenario. John, so you have the the polls that are that are present for just deciding what the preference is currently for particular candidates that are in contested seats and contested elections. Are there other kinds of questions that political scientists will often be trying to address where they're collecting data? I mean, polls are one form of collecting of data. What what are other sources that you look at for for your decisions? And, Sure, absolutely. When we're when we're talking about um, uh, elections and trying to model or predict predict elections, um, some very important kind of information can go into those models. So, for example, economic indicators. So, oftentimes, uh, you'll see political scientists use uh, GDP second quarter or uh, consumer sentiment measures around the second quarter. Um, as 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 an indicator of um, kind of a structural indicator to to get a sense of um, the way the election's going to go. Uh, other kinds of factors, data that we collect about elections too, have to do with the political environment and the political context. So, uh, for example, um, uh, public approval of the president is is one one big indicator that's that's important in terms of modeling uh, presidential elections. In this case. Uh, even though we we won't have Obama in the White House or he's not on the ticket, his still um, public approval numbers is still going to be indicative of uh, how 
um, uh, how voters are going to either reward uh, his party or punish his party. So the, kind of capturing the political context and the political environment, along with economic indicators, all of that data um, in conjunction with polls uh, is very valuable in helping us uh, understand election outcomes. Well, as I kind of mentioned in the opening, one thing that struck me through the years is how, you know, back back in the day you had Gallup, for example, was one of the best-known polling agencies. But today there's just so many different polls. And I think, do you think that kind of adds to some of the confusion for voters? Because as you said, a lot of times they hear or see the horse race numbers, but they really don't know what goes into each one of those polls. Absolutely, and and you know, with the the snapshot that the media typically gives uh, gives uh, viewers or or readers of a poll, they typically don't don't give readers a sense of what the margin of error is. So when you see somebody going up, you know, three uh, percent, you know, since the last poll, but this poll has a much smaller n number of observations, for example, right? That margin of error gets bigger, and so all of a sudden, people think that there's there's some kind of trend when really there's there's no there's no difference, you know. So so that's what I think we lose oftentimes in terms of. Um, uh, the media when they're they're giving us information about polls. So as a quick follow-up, you know, with, with the different polls that are available, one of the things that seems to have been productive in recent elections have been methods that, that have done some aggregation. This kind of combination across these results, this ensemble that you have of polls that are being conducted and producing predictions, that's something that we saw with 538 dot yes, com very right. successfully has has taken those polls and taken the the different precision and perhaps some of the different bias that might be there you know that seems to have been a a, a revolutionary idea in terms of looking at, yeah. at at polling results are are there other things that that you've seen that that have had that kind of revolutionary impact or y- yeah just in, in in terms of um uh figuring out uh uh, the most the most valuable polls, the best indicators of uh, of various of various poll sources, as you mentioned at the outset. There's so many different polls right now, but but really, 538 and some of the other um, outfits that that try to model elections. It, it really comes down to, you know, how do we how do we figure out, you know, which polls are the most accurate, you know, which ones um, should we include in our model. Uh, so on and so forth. So, for example, uh, there's been lots of work that that's being done in terms of using past polling um, uh, uh, information to simulate how their you know recent polls are doing. And so, you know, you could uh, use that information to kind of penalize one poll compared to another poll, or weight one poll slightly more than another poll. So there's just all different ways of using that data and that information that we have now to try to come up with kind of really precise estimates about you know this poll or that poll. And and there's things like house effects too, right? So uh, how different polling operations identify likely voters. That's that's all different, right? And so it kind of kind of goes into, you know, who's who's been the most accurate in the past and and how how we should fit that information into our models. One other thing I wanted to kind of kind of go off of of that <clears throat> when I go back to the 2016 primaries, you had this huge decision that had to be made that had never had to be made before where you had 17 or 18 people <laughs> running and who was going to get to be on the stage. And it's it the same thing kind of applies in presidential once you get through the primaries. 
when you have independent candidates like you do this year that are polling to some extent 8 9 10% like yeah. the libertarian candidates but they're not quite you know good enough to be in in with the republican and democratic candidates let's talk a little bit about that whole issue because again i think it, it depends on what polls are you using to decide who gets to actually appear on the debate stage no exactly and and you know um at the outset i had mentioned other other data we use and 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 actually um, those things like economic indicators and indicators of the of the political environment. A lot of those folks that have used those those kinds of data in the past uh, kind of assumed away third parties, right? They 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 were really predicting the the two party vote as opposed to you know even incorporating um, uh, an independent party. And so in this race especially, but but we've had races you know over time where independents have have played an important role. Um, but but certainly this time around, when you have voters that seem so frustrated with their respective party nominee, you know you're going to be looking at those potential choices that they're going to make, and you know you have those independent uh, uh, candidates out there. You're listening to Stats and Stories, where we talk about the statistics behind the stories and the stories behind the statistics. And our topic today, understanding the numerous political polls and just everything that goes into uh, the politics of a major presidential election year. I'm Bob Long, and I'm joined by our regular panelist, Miami University Statistics Department Chair John Baylor, and our special guest today, Miami University Political Science Professor Brian Marshall. I'll go to John Baylor for the next question. You know, that the comment that you made earlier about the idea of past polling being informative and maybe being used to weight some of the results that we have from present polls, that, that seems based on such a strong assumption, the strong assumption that the past is going to be predictive of, of this present. And, and, and we're, we're, we're living in an election time where it's been interesting that if you go back, if you were to go back a year year into the past, you may not have predicted that we would have this particular set of candidate, two major party candidates running. Mm-hmm. Um, so I'm just wondering about the, you know, the, the validity of the extrapolation of some of this past data to present circumstance. And, you know, how do you, you know, have you, can you think of other times in history where there's been this disconnect between kind of the kind of immediate past or recent past, and then this kind of sea change in terms of a, a current, a current race? You know, <laughs> that's a really good question, John. I mean, um, uh, in terms of my political memory, I don't I don't remember a race like this because you know, as as you, as you suggest and and we've suggested here, um, both candidates are um, uh, polling so negatively, and even even for members of their own party that that identify with with the respective party, and so you know we can have good data, we can have good polling data, we can have good indicators, indicators that have worked in the past, you know. But what do you do? But 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 those models also assume that that voters um, are at least relatively happy, if not perfectly happy, with their uh, party's nominee. In this case. Neither one of those things is holds true, right? Neither for for the Democrats right. or for the Republicans. Yeah, I mean, we have a you know when you think about predictive models, predictive models are based on certain conditions, and the application of those models into the future are assuming that the conditions are similar. Hold, that's right. Yeah, if the conditions are are broken, you know, then all bets are off, and the mo- you know your faith in the models have just it's gone. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I think one thing that. I'm kind of curious about because I think a lot of people would wonder about this. In the past, it seems to me, and correct me if I'm wrong, that a lot of the polling was done because 
everybody had a phone in their house. Well, today so many people have done away with their home phone or they they can look on there and see, oh, who's calling me? I don't recognize this call. This looks like a political call. I want nothing to do with this. Does that make it more difficult to really try to find people? Because I know supposedly you're not supposed to call people on their cell phones. <laughs> uh, it, but it, it's, it's, it seems to me it would make the polling uh, job so much more difficult today. A- absolutely, Bob. I mean, I think, I think we have a, really a saturated market now, especially in the United States when we think about, you know, all the polls. You, you know, before you, before you can go into this news article online, you gotta, you got to <laughs> click, you got to get this, you know, answer this or that thing, right? And uh, the last thing we want to do, we get home from work, is, you know, answer another poll, you know, uh, <laughs> about, about how we're going to vote. So I think, I, I certainly think you, you have that uh, saturation issue. And if, if we if, if we look at the polls that we're, we're talking about here, the, the national and the state polls, uh, those response rates um, are, are just terrible in terms of, of getting voter uh, getting likely voters to respond to them. And just it's very, very difficult. And when we do get a poll uh, uh, with a reasonable amount of um, uh, respondents, we also we, we what we try to do is because of those populations of people that we don't have very much information on, uh, we try to, you know, map that out with census data, and then we have to worry about weighting, you know, and each outfit's going to weigh uh, this differently, and so you have we have to worry about those kinds of things. So, I mean, there's there's lots of lots of problems when you think about um, uh, getting people uh, to respond to a poll, and uh, the other thing too is 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 that it's kind of an almost an act of faith when we think about well we we get we've got the survey of a thousand respondents what about the non-respondents what about the people that turned us down right it's it's like an act of faith that the people that turned us down look like the people that responded right and so and we know that's not true i mean we know for example um, at least in, in, in politics, when uh, one candidate's up for a week or has a really good week that polls that are done, um, the, the uh, uh, likely voters of the opposite party are much less likely to, to respond to a poll because they're, they're kind of down. They're, they're candidates, you know, uh, 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 going underwater. And so they're much less likely to respond. And so you kind of have a, a cumulative effect right with those with those polls and th- and that injects uncertainty about about the polling results well it certainly makes you wonder that what what the reported margin of error means i mean cuz it's that's based on assuming that everything is tied up in the sampling the sampling variability not in some of these non-sampling errors and that non-representativeness of of non-responders versus responders that's that's a ki- critical question in any yeah. kind of survey research I mean, you can probably do some work. You can say, okay, the average age of the responders was this, the non-responders was this, the demo, you know, percentage yeah. of certain demographic characteristics you might compare. But you know, at some point, like you said, it's you know, right. your hands, you just throw your hands up. Right. I mean, how do you how do you capture you know the non-respondents' excitement of, about politics, right, or some of those key variables? Yeah that really tell us, are they going to turn out? And I mean, that's the other question, right? Mm -hmm. Going from uh, likely voters and trying to predict, you know, who's going to turn out. And and that's huge, especially nowadays with such a polarized and very close competitive elections that we've had in the last 20 years. You know, I think the other thing that would be kind of complicated this year is just the number of people who are, say, for example, diehard Republican or diehard Democrat who don't like their party's candidates and who aren't going to vote 
don't want to vote for either one of them. And so that makes it hard, I think, to know. They may go to the polls, but will they even bother to to pull the lever, so to speak, for a presidential candidate? You, you know, absolutely, Bob. And, and, and I mean, that's why you have I, – I, I certainly think this is true with the Re- Republican, the National Republican Party, but also the Democratic Party to some extent this year, right? They try to give, they try to give their, their base reasons to show up, right? And so you have uh, 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 lots of money being spent in various states um, uh, and state campaigns – uh, trying to focus on the top of the ticket other than the presidential uh, seat, right? So, you know, make sure you vote for the Senate incumbent or, you know, the governor or what have you, right? So reasons to show up for your party. And then um, uh, it, on the other side of the equation, you have candidates trying to distance themselves to some extent from the presidential candidates, right? Mm-hmm. And so, again, kind of giving voters a reason a reason to show up other than the top of the ticket. You're listening to Stats and Stories, and again, we're talking about, as you can guess, presidential politics. Hopefully, we'll get into some other uh, re- related things. You mentioned the some of the other down-ballot races, which also to the parties are very, very critical this year as to who's going to control uh, Congress and, and things like that. Our special guest today is Miami University political science professor Brian Marshall. He's done a lot of research that focuses on Congress and relationships between the executive and legislative branches, and also has looked at the judicial branch in a a book called Decision Making in the Modern Supreme Court. Also joining me today, our regular panelist, Miami University Statistics Department Chair, John Baylor. John, I'll go back to you for our next question. I was curious, do do other countries have the same kind of passion about polling that we seem to possess? You know, that's a really good question, John. I'm I'm not a comparative politics expert, but, but what I do know is that the typical election season in other countries is far shorter. And so there's just not that much of an em- emphasis on, you know, who's ahead and, and who's behind like we have like we have in this country. Um, so it, it is quite a bit different, I think. Yeah, I was, was interesting. I went back and looked at some stories about presidential races, say, in the early 1900s, where back then the incumbents didn't even want to go out and campaign. They thought that was... Not the right thing to do. <laughs> it wasn't statesman, statesman-like <laughs> it wasn't behavior. Sta- exactly. Uh, but so obviously things have changed dramatically. I think one of the things that that we haven't talked about today, um, we may have touched on a little bit, but in today's world, I think another thing that makes things so polarizing is the fact that there are so many different kinds of media outlets that say if you're a conservative person – you're going to get your news from this website, this television network, et cetera. And if you're more liberal, you're going to do the opposite. You know, there's going to be people that you're going to how, – how much more difficult do you think that makes it um, in this election cycle, not just for president but for other races, the fact that people – they only hear what they want to hear. They're they're no longer getting an yeah. you know kind of an impartial view if yeah. there ever was such a thing. But it, it's such so 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 much more dramatic. I think to this today. Yeah, I I think that's a really good point, Bob. I mean, if you look if you look at past elections over time, you know, post World War II uh, on. I mean, there there used to be a sizable number of the electorate that would uh, split ticket. That, that is, they'd vote for president of one party and then down ballot maybe for the U.S. senator or for their their House member. They would vote the other the other party, right? But in the last couple of cycles, uh, we've seen that uh, ticket splitting really really shrink in terms of of the frequency that occurs to to less than ten percent now. I mean, it used to be well over twenty percent 
of the electorate would would split tickets. Um, uh, but but now that has really really shrunk, and so big explanation for that is 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 partisanship. People have have sorted themselves out more uh, ideologically and with respect to the political parties. Um, so, uh, you know, it used to be the case that you'd see lots of very conservative Democrats, uh, conservative Democratic voters, but those folks have um, uh, s- switched parties over time, uh, and and the same thing with with Republicans. So there used to be a very strong base um, in the Northeast, Northeastern Republicans, for example, that tended to be more liberal or moderate voters. Um, and so you have this kind of, um, uh, you know, we used to have this kind of regional impact of, of ideology and party that, that we don't have, we don't see much of that anymore. So, so that would suggest that, that future elections, maybe even the current election, is going to be dis- decided by smaller and smaller percentages of the population. Yeah, I think, I think, that's, I think that's exactly right, John. And when, and when we look, you know, because the two parties are, are relatively uh, uh, evenly distributed for the most part, um, and and even people that say they're independents, right? What we know is they're really not independent. So you know the the thirty five percent or so people that that say they're independents in polls, um, they act like partisans, right? They they they're independent, but they lean w- with one party or the other party. And so what we actually have in terms of true independence is just a very very small percentage of people. And, and, and so yeah. that that can be yeah. that could be important, right? Um, but if those folks stay home, then what really matters is that you turn out your base, right? And so you have these camp, different campaign strategies during you know midterm election year versus presidential election year, you know that can vary uh, for that reason because well the independents are going to stay home anyway. Well that means that we we've got to turn out our base, and so you have campaigns, you know, totally predicated on on that goal you know, trying to, to make sure your base turns out. One issue that relates to that that I've noticed in this presidential election, and you've kind of written about the Supreme Court, which is the, mm-hmm. the third branch that we haven't really talked about here, but there's this fear with one seat open and the fact that there may be other seats that will open in the next four years, that that could have a huge impact. Do you think that's also something that's being used on both sides by Republicans and Democrats to try to motivate people that if if you do this, if you don't come out and vote, this is what's going to happen. Oh, oh, absolutely. I think I think uh, especially both parties uh, use use the Supreme Court to try to get their base out. Right. Um, I, I think it's true when you think of the maybe the regular voter might not pay a whole lot of attention you know to the supreme court or you know even supreme court rulings when we look at public opinion and and people's knowledge of the court it's very sparse uh, but certainly the base of both parties cares quite a bit about it. And um, it's really interesting, too, this this year with um, with the Republican strategy in the Senate uh, to to block the Garland nomination right. um, and and to basically let that seat ride until after the presidential election. Right. And so that that I think that that strategy really came out of uh, came came from Mitch McConnell, who who has been a very good kind of uh, uh, strategizer uh, for the party, right? And so when they decided to do that, of course, they didn't know who the nominee was going to be. And now with Trump being the nominee, I think that decision looks even smarter in ter- politically, right? Because now um, uh, McConnell has 
and Republicans have a reason for those for all those folks that wanted Marco Rubio or for all those people that wanted to vote for Ted Cruz, right? All those uh, 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 disaffected Republican uh, primary voters. Now the party, Republican Party, can say, "Hey, the Supreme Court weighs in the balance. You ha- we have to show up, right?" And so I think it even makes that strategy look uh, uh, look wiser. John. You know, one thing we, we ask all the guests that, that join us are, are what skills, what quantitative skills should people have to, to be political scientists? And also the, a related question is, what should journalists know about to report political science news better? So if you could weigh in on that. Sure, absolutely. So, um, I mean, I think one of my... Um, one of my suggestions, I won't call it a pet peeve, right? Because we all have pet peeves about other people's disciplines, right? But, but if I were, if I were, if I were to, to give some advice to journalists, you know, I, w- I would say, hey, you know what? Um, a little bit of historical context goes a long, long way, right? And so um, I would want journalists to report a little bit more about historical context. So, you know, you know we're, we're so focused on, on the polls, on the snapshot right now, this debate that's going to happen, you know, between Hillary Clinton and uh, Donald Trump. How about a little bit of historical context? You know, do, do these debates matter, for example, you know, in elections, right? So um, that, would, that, would be, that would be one thing um, that, that or one takeaway, I think, from uh, for journalists. What was the other? The that was related to what, what kind of, when you think about training political scientists training, for the future, right. That's right. what kind of quantitative skills should they possess to really be a high-functioning political scientist in the, the, these, this day and age? Yeah, so certainly I've got my own bias, right? So uh, <laughs> I'm an empiricist, right? So I look at what very <laughs> smart people like John do in stats and, 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 and other disciplines and say, hey, how can I use this for, for my data and, 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 and what I do? Um, but certainly, I think um, uh, students have to have at least a comfort with data, uh, empirical data. That's not to say that um, you couldn't, you you can't do qualitative research too, and and, and compare because that is an incredibly um, uh, a strong um, methodology. And so, I mean, they're both in- incredibly valuable in what we do. But just the the plethora of data that we are awash with nowadays, you know, makes it that if you can at least be comfortable with data, uh, to use data, then it's really going to give you an, a, a lot of opportunities as a political science student. Well, as a former journalist, I guess one thing that I sometimes worry about is this fixation we have in America that you vote every four years and you vote for president. <laughs> and there's so much more at stake in the state legislature, in Congress. And I, I guess I worry about the fact that we tend to ignore. I mean, I don't, I often wonder if you went out and asked the person on the street who was running for Congress, who, who was running for U.S. Senate in their particular state, how many of them would even know that? <laughs> but it seems like there's so much of a focus. Uh, do, do you think that's a problem, too, that we don't give enough credit to the other branches of government that are, and, and levels of government that are very, very important? I, I, I think that's exactly right, Bob. I mean, especially in, in, in midterm elections, right? So right. that's that's when we see turnout just plummet, you know, mm-hmm. um, 35 percent, 
you know, 40%. I mean, you know, we can do better than that as, as kind of the leading democracy in the world, I would, I would hope, you know. Um, and so, uh, so that is, that is something that I worry about, you know, that, that like you say, you know, it's a presidential election year, we're going to spend $2 billion and, and campaign uh, contributions, and this is going to be a highly salient thing. And then, we're not going to ask for, you know, that's it. We're going to go home, you know? <laughs> and so I certainly do worry about that. You know, how do you, uh, I think keeping politicians accountable is something that we have to do daily, you know, not just every four years. Right. And it's also that those local elections, the odd year elections, I think the two are, are, are very important that really get, as you said, the turnout sometimes is yeah. even under 30% for those. Absolutely. Any other, one more question, yeah. John? You know, one of the things when you raise the, the issue of, of historic context, and you we've talked about the idea of, of past conditions and models built on those relevant for today, the idea that there's uncertainty associated with the estimates. It seems like there's there's all this nuance. And how, how, does, how can you effectively communicate the nuance associated with, you know, the political process in a way that, that how do journalists do that? What, what's, what are suggestions you might have for addressing that? I, I, I mean, you're exactly, you're exactly right there, too, in terms of, um, of, in terms of uncertainty, right? That is, we can, make, we can have these polls, we can make predictions. Uh, there's, there's something that, you know, we call the margin of error, but there's all kinds of things that can go, all kinds of different uncertainty or aspects that can go into that, into that poll. And so I think just just for journalists to give a sense of, you know, those different sources of uncertainty uh, that we have, I think would be would be valuable. So again, kind of giving giving a little bit more context to the readers and to the to the average citizen so they can understand that a little bit better. Miami University political science professor Brian Marshall's been our special guest on Stats and Stories. Brian, we thank you again very much. Yeah, thank you, thanks, Bob. Brian. Thanks, John. If you'd like to share your thoughts on our program, we remind you, you can send your email to statsandstories at miamioh.edu. And be sure to listen for future editions of Stats and Stories, where we always try to focus on the statistics behind the stories and the stories behind the statistics.